time, you're jumping in on the last week of a series called The Prayer. And what we've done this fall is we've taken six weeks and explored the most famous prayer in the world. It's the prayer that Jesus taught his first followers to pray. One day they come to him and they say, hey, would you teach us to pray? They noticed that Jesus had an unusual and unique connection with God and that he prayed differently than they had been taught to pray. And so one day they just asked him. And what's so fascinating about Jesus' response is it helps us see how Jesus saw the world and helps us see how he wants his followers to see the world. This is, this is what Jesus said when they asked him how to pray. He says, this end is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Or you may have grown up saying, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Same idea. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And as we've been saying all along in this series, there are six images that Jesus assembles to make this prayer. Six images that I would argue are the ideas he wants his followers to return to again and again and again when they consider conversations they're having with God. Here's the images we've explored. We've talked about the Father, we've talked about the kingdom of heaven, the name of God, the daily bread, forgiveness, and then finally temptation, uh, which is our conversation today. And I want to argue that I believe that this particular image is probably the most applicable image of all. Uh, and so to get us going, I want to show you a definition for temptation that I found on the interweb. I don't know if you've ever found this interweb thing, but I just want to give a shout out to my man Al Gore for inventing it because it changed the game. Okay, here's what we got. Sermon preparation, way easier than it used to be. Temptation. Something with strong emotional appeal that is often regarded as unwise, wrong, or immoral. Strong emotional appeal appeal. And as I was thinking about it, like if you're a visual person like me, maybe something visual would help you. I believe that the moral and ethical equivalent of temptation is cheesecake. You with me on this? Okay, this is, this is how this goes, friends. Okay, so just imagine with me, you're in Chicago and you're downtown Chicago. And there's a restaurant there that's famous for their cheesecake. Maybe you've heard of it. I won't mention them by name, okay? But you're there and, and you've just enjoyed a meal and, and it's an epic meal. It's a 3,500 calorie meal if you're counting and who is at that place. And, and you reach the end of your meal and you are full, 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 full. And you say to yourself, I am content. I don't need anything else. And then the server, a demon in human form, rolls the cart in front of you, does he or she not? And you look upon the cheesecake and suddenly any sort of willpower vanishes and, and, and you know you shouldn't. You know it's unwise, it's probably wrong and maybe a bit even unethical, but everything in you wants to order it anyway. If you listen in that moment, you can actually hear the voice of the siren of temptation calling to you. You know the siren, right? The siren is the thing that's on the cup at Starbucks. Have you ever been to Starbucks? This is the siren, okay? And, and sirens, um, and this is just a fascinating sidebar. This is just for free. Um, Starbucks chose a siren as their logo, and so there was actually a meeting when they decided to do that, and this is why I find that fascinating. If you said, what's a siren? A siren is a mythical creature uh, from the Greek time period, and, and, and in stories, the sirens would call to the young sailors from their island, which was surrounded by rocks, and basically would lure or tempt these sailors by their beautiful singing to crash their ships on the rocks and die. 
So there was a meeting in the 70s when Starbucks got together. They're like, what should we use on our cups? Oh, I know, a siren. It would be like this. Come to us and meet your caffeine-fueled doom one cup at a time. Yeah? I just, I'm just saying. Okay, that was just for fun. Okay. So temptation is a struggle for all of us. And like cheesecake, temptation comes in many flavors. And in my experience, it always presents itself as a very alluring it. Think about it this way. Sometimes you want to lease it. Sometimes you want to take it. Sometimes you want to smoke it. Sometimes you want to drink it. Sometimes you want to date it and maybe even move in with it, right? There's all sorts of different things that, yes, yeah, there you go, slow burn on that one. <laughs> Whatever your it is, if you fell for it, there's another common thing that happens. You probably end up feeling ripped off, disappointed, disillusioned, and unfulfilled. Because in short order, you realize that you don't even really want it. And you can't wait to sell it. And, and you can't wait to free yourself from the lease of it. And, or maybe you couldn't wait for it to move out of your apartment. Yes, I had so much fun writing that this week. Okay, yeah. And in those moments of clarity, you're like, what was I thinking? Like, how could I have been so stupid? I fell for it and maybe even got trapped by it. And now, now I regret it. For some of you, it may have even started as sort of a past, past time and it became a pathway. And now it's taking you somewhere you don't want to be. But you're almost like trapped in this thing. It's a habit. It's like a, it's like a prison. And if you're honest and you look back at, at the moment where you started down that path, you can see how it happened, right? I mean, the thing, it had strong emotional appeal. You wanted it. And, and so you lowered your defenses and you raised your defensiveness. Am I the only one that's done this, right? You lowered your defenses and you raised your defensiveness. And your friends or your parents or your spouse or someone who loves you came along and tried to get you to see that whatever this thing is, it wasn't going to be good for you, but you didn't listen. No nudging people next to you, okay? You didn't listen, did you? And it's almost like you couldn't listen. And when you think back, you're like, what in the world was going on? Well, here's what sociologists tell us without realizing a phenomenon called confirmation bias kicked in. You familiar with this? Confirmation bias is when you only can see what you want to see and you can only hear what you want to hear. You, you can't see what you don't want to see and you can't hear what you don't want to hear. It's part of the human condition. You couldn't see it, so you just, you just did it. And you're not stupid and your IQ didn't suddenly drop. You were tempted. You were blinded by someone or something with strong emotional appeal. And when that's hard, when, when that happens, it's hard or even impossible to see the danger that's right in front of you. But before we move on, though, I want to just lean on a few of you, um, because if you're here this morning and you're currently considering something that the people in your life who know you and love you are trying to talk you out of, you, and, and when the topic comes up, you get like unusually defensive, please pay attention because the people who love you have an advantage. They're not blinded by confirmation bias and they can often see what you can't see when you get trapped in that strong emotional appeal. And so they care for you. So please pay attention. Don't jump too quickly. Well, at the end of the day, temptation is a big deal because it can radically alter the direction and quality of our lives and it can leave us with a lot of regret. 
And what I want to argue today is, is the reason for that, and, and this is a principle, so it's, it's true for all of us, it's our big idea for today, it goes like this. What is alluring, what calls to you with the siren's voice, is not always fulfilling. Like it promises you life, but in the end it just leaves you feeling empty. That's why this is such a big deal. That's why I think Jesus wants us to focus on this as we consider our walk with God. So today's application, given all of that, is actually pretty simple. You ready? Here it is. You can write this down if you're a note taker. Just stop. <laughs> just stop falling for temptation, right? We can just adjourn. Go get some more popcorn. Life is good, right? Don't you wish it was, it was that simple? But, but we, know, we know it's not. And, and so what should we do moving forward to avoid regret and to silence the voice of the siren? What can we do moving forward? How can we avoid falling into the trap? And so fortunately uh, for us, this is not a new problem for human beings. This has been a problem for human beings literally since the beginning, since the invention of human beings, as it were. Uh, and there's a letter that was written 2,000 years ago by an early Christian pastor named Paul in which he sort of gets into all of this. He writes a letter to Christians living in a Roman region called Galatia. Today it'd be on the eastern edge of Turkey. Uh, and he's encouraging them as they sort of navigate some of the same situations that we still struggle with today. And before I show you what he said, a little bit about Paul, uh, he's a really fascinating character. He stepped onto the pages of history as someone who hated Christians. He was a Jewish leader, and he saw Christians as sort of a cancer within Judaism. And so he set his heart, mind, and efforts on sort of making sure that Christianity stopped as a movement. He hunted down Christians. He imprisoned Christians. From a Christian's perspective, he was like public enemy number one. And some of you were like, I think I would have liked that guy because I don't always like Christians. Yeah, there you go. He's your guy. So, um, but then what ends up happening one day is Paul comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And he realizes that everything the Christians were doing was actually in line with what God wanted and not working against God. And so Paul, hate, who hated Christians, actually becomes one becomes a pastor and travels all over the Mediterranean Rim, planting churches and telling everyone he can about Jesus, about who Jesus is and about what Jesus can do. And so anyway, in a letter to early Christians, Paul talks about how to overcome temptation and avoid regret. And so this is really a message for all of us. This is actually a message for you. If you're like on the outside of faith, sort of wondering why anybody would pursue a relationship with God, this today really will help you understand what's going on and why Christianity is such a compelling way to live. Uh, and also I want to just make one note before I show you what he says. He's writing to Christians, which means that after you say yes to Jesus, you can still be tempted. And some of you went, yeah, I already knew that. Okay, there we go. So here it is, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Here's what Paul says. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So first, a little bit about what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. When Paul says walk by the Spirit, he's encouraging us to live in sync with the eternal nudging, internal nudgings of our Heavenly Father. It's those moments where you're faced with something and you have this weird sense inside that someone is coughing, like <clears throat> trying to get your attention. Right, the internal nudgings of your Heavenly Father. And the New Testament writers are clear that God will always nudge you towards putting other people first. He'll nudge you to move away from selfish things that hurt people and towards sacrificial things that will help people. He will always nudge you away from sacrificing your future freedom and your future potential. So Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires 
of the sinful nature. Now, when Paul talks about the sinful nature, he's talking about our appetites. Another tra- way to translate sinful nature is, is the flesh. It's that which comes naturally to us as human beings. He's talking about the things that we see and hear and taste and touch that sort of elicit desire inside of us. To gratify the desires of the sinful nature is to say yes to every one of those impulses. To gratify the desires of the sinful nature is to say yes to temptation and to route your life in that direction. But when you do that, and we all know this, you end up hurting yourself and you end up hurting other people. Down the road, you, you sort of wake up and you go, you know, I don't know that this I don't know that this life that I've constructed based on following temptation is all that fulfilling. And the good news is that Jesus came to earth, God sent his one and only son to show you the counterintuitive path to a fulfilling life. And it comes when you put other people first and allow the promptings of your heavenly father to guide your life. Now, as profound as all that is, Paul is only getting started. Here's what he says as he continues. Um, He says, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. So he's setting up sort of a a dichotomy. There's these two voices that are going to try to call to you. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. Like there's a war within you so that you cannot do what you want to do, which sounds a little strange, but what he's saying is you don't always do the things that lead you to what you ultimately want. So it's, Paul affirms to these early Christians that there really is a battle raging within them. It's a tension between what they ought to do and what they want to do. And if you think about it, it's pretty fascinating that we don't always want to do what we ought to do. It's like somehow there's a law or a set of values that's deep in each of us that is in conflict with our desires. And you say, well, why is that? Why is that? It's there and it's real. Uh, Why is it that I should want, it seems like I should want to do what I ought to do, but that's just not the case. If we all did what we ought to do all the time, like there would be no such thing as cheesecake, Right? I mean, entire restaurant chains would cease to exist. I'm looking at you five guys. Yeah, I'm just saying. There's a little personal thing going on there. Yeah, but the truth is that you can't always trust your instincts. Your instincts will betray you. That's why things with strong emotional appeal should be a red flag, a red flag and not a green light. So when you're navigating life and you come upon something that's particularly ca- captivating or compelling... And everything in you is like, man, I want that. I want to go there. I want to date that, whatever that is. Because of this principle that we all know to be true, we should feel like the need to pause and to consider and maybe even seek wisdom from other people who love us in this moment as we try to discern it. Because when something has strong emotional appeal, it often will lead us in directions that we really don't want to go. Now, now, to be fair, that thing with strong emotional appeal may actually be fine. It may actually be the thing that you're supposed to do. It may be a great thing. She may actually be the one, right? Or, or you may really, maybe you should lease the car or make that investment. But when you experience strong emotional appeal, don't immediately see that as a green light. That will often lead you into temptation and into trouble. Instead, pause and consider and then wave the caution flag. 
So Paul continues. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So Paul says that there's a spirit-filled life, it doesn't need laws. A spirit-filled life always sacrifices for others and always loves without condition. And if that is the primary trajectory of your life, you simply don't need laws. You say, well, how do I not need laws? Well, laws are designed to curb destructive and all too often natural behavior. You say, well, Paul, what, what, what are you talking about? He tells us a little bit as he continues. He says, okay, he says, uh, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. He's like, you're saying, what do I mean by sinful nature and, and what it means to live into the sinful nature? I mean, come on, that's obvious. Paul is saying if you just were to do whatever you wanted to do in a given moment, if you knew you could get away with it, that your wife wouldn't find out, that your husband wouldn't find out, that your kids wouldn't find out, there wouldn't be any consequences. If you were just to go with what comes naturally, here's what would happen. And I love what Paul does here because he says the sinful nature, the acts of sinful nature, they're obvious. Like, I don't even need to tell you. But he tells us anyway, which I think is awesome. Obvious. Here we go. It's a great list. Yeah. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, which is a great one because no one knows what it means. So we just go, oh, debauchery. Probably got that totally nailed. Okay. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, which is Paul's fancy way of saying et cetera, right? Like he was like, this is kind of the way this goes. This is, this is what the sinful nature is going to call to you to indulge in. And every single time you succumb to that voice, that siren's call, you are taking your life and the life of those you love in the wrong direction. If you said to me, you know, how would you sort of summarize that? I would argue that the acts of the sinful nature are always pleasure at someone else's expense. They're always pleasure at someone else's expense. It's a short-term pleasure for you as at the expense of a long-term problem for someone else. When you give in to the acts of the flesh, it's pleasure at someone else's expense. Someone always pays the price when you give in to temptation, even if you get away with it. Even if you don't get caught, somebody suffers. And I would argue that ultimately, you suffer too. It's always a bad trade-off. But as Paul continues, he gives us some hope. Which is, which is nice after that long list of nastiness. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, so this is this other voice that's going to nudge you, and if you lean into God's voice in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what's sort of going to become reality in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, doesn't that just make you go, oh, right? Like if we're honest, we don't really want to lease the car. We want this. I want, to, I want love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's what I want. How do I want to be remembered at my funeral? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That's what I want. Way more than I want the car or the house or the gig or the job or, or whatever. The fruit of the Spirit begins to happen when, when you say to God, I'm tired of living for me. And so I'm going to choose to stop listening to my inner voice and start listening to your voice. And you admit to God, my instincts aren't working. I, I've made a mess of things. And the good news is, how, whatever's in your past, the invitation is fresh right in this moment to move forward with God. There's grace and there's forgiveness for the past, however dark. God is not done with you. You've not done too much, gone too far. He's like, would you just start right here and right now 
to trust me and to live in a different direction. And this is why for me, when I, when I have friends that are outside of faith and they say to me, you know, why would anybody want to voluntarily submit their life to a God? And I say, because the God of the Bible is the God who sent his one and only son to show us how to live and lead us in the direction of the life that we really were made for and that really is ultimately satisfying and really is ultimately fulfilling. And whenever I say that, they always just take a big long drink of coffee and then look at their shoes. I don't know what to say to that. So there's that, right? Yeah, yeah. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That, that's, the life, that's the life that you were made for. Single people, that's the type of person you want to marry, isn't it? Married people, that's the kind of person that you want your kids and grandkids to marry, isn't it? Employers, that's the kind of people you want to hire to work for you, isn't it? Love, joy, peace. See, something deep in us, we, we know, we know that this is, this is the best sort of life. So Paul says, when you finally say to God, you want his will for your life, you start to pay attention to those internal nudgings, God will produce the fruit of the spirit in you. And to be clear, he won't do it without you. He's going to partner with you. And a whole bunch of us that have been following Jesus for a long time would say, you're not going to do it very well without him. Uh, there's something inside of us that's warped and we need help from the outside in. And ultimately then by his spirit from the inside out. So here's, here's what Paul says after he talks about the good stuff. He says, against such things, love, joy, peace, there is no law, which is, which is a fascinating thing to think about. You don't need a law against things like love and peace. They are not among culture's many challenges. Would you agree? Yeah, nobody ever says, uh, you know, the problem with my marriage, pastor, is that my wife, she is too patient. She's got to cut it out. It's driving me nuts. She needs counseling. Or, or maybe, um, and this might be a little close home for me, just to be honest with you, right? Hey, kids, third row in the minivan. Yeah, you back there. Too much kindness. Knock it off. Can't get anywhere. You're not fighting. It's, it's bad. Or, or how about this one? You know, the problem with my husband, he's too faithful. No, he goes on business trips all the time. I never worry about where he is. I never worry about who he's with. I just trust him implicitly. It is obnoxious, right? Yeah, nobody says that. In a world filled with the Spirit, Paul's like, listen, laws aren't necessary. So Paul concludes this section with this encouragement. Again, talking to Christians. He says, since we live by the Spirit, you've said yes to Jesus. God's Spirit is in you. He wants to lead you. That part's done. He goes, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, he's done his part. Now you got to do your part. Listen to those promptings. And one step at a time, move in the direction of his voice. Day by day, moment by moment, the Spirit of God invites us to follow. And he invites us to look beyond what is momentarily alluring and to move beyond temptation and towards a life that's ultimately fulfilling. And so temptation is a big deal and God has made a way for us to overcome it and so when Jesus teaches his first followers to pray, he wants to keep that image front and center. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And to be clear, Jesus is not saying that God is in the business of leading us into temptation. Rather, every step we take in this life 
carries the potential for temptation. We live in a world that resonates with the song of the sirens. And so Jesus teaches us to pray that as we walk this path, that temptation does not take us in, that we would be delivered from evil, from the evil that surrounds us all, that by the voice of his spirit, God would deliver us from that evil. So before we, before we go, I, I need to ask you a, a challenging question. Um, and it's not because I don't care about you, it's because I do care about you, because the people that care about you ask you the hard questions. Would you agree? So here, here's, here's the question. Um, have you become so enamored with something or someone that you've become blind to its danger or their danger? Have you become so enamored with something or someone that you've become blind to its danger? And have you lowered your defenses and raised your defensiveness? And some of you are, are going to head to lunch after this, and I've set you up because the, you're going to sit across the table from someone who loves you, and they're going to go, so did you notice anything? Like, we've been talking about her, right? And, and how she's not good for you, and you don't see it, and you'll probably take a long drink of coffee and look at your feet, you know, and, and that's okay. But, but just, between, just between you and, and God, and maybe you and whoever cares about you, is, is that you? And if so, my prayer is that today's talk would cause you to pause and to think. And that you would view things that are alluring as caution flags and not automatically as green lights. And that in doing so, you would end up making wise choices for your future. Because friends, what is alluring is not always fulfilling. So one day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus' first followers asked him to teach them to pray. And in response, he teaches them a prayer that helps us see the world like he sees the world. And it's a prayer that the images that it contains help us answer some of life's biggest questions like who is God and who are we and why are we here and how should we live? And my hope is that this series has forever changed how you see the Lord's Prayer. That you wouldn't just see it as, as some thing you just say over and over and over again as a part of a, a religious service, but, but you might take a moment and just reflect on those images as you have your own conversations with your Heavenly Father. And so what I want to do to close today is something that we've never done at Keystone that I've been here. Uh, we're actually going to recite the Lord's Prayer together in unison. Some of you are going to have flashbacks. It's okay. <laughs> just this once, all right? Well, if you could stand, and we're going to put it on the screen. Um, and there's one part that's not in the text. It's the, uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And if we don't say that, I'm aware a whole bunch of you are going to email me. So we're just going to say that part too. Okay. <laughs> that is not in Matthew 6, but we can, we can say that part too. So here we go. Would you say this with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed. deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen that was awesome okay yeah all right let, let me pray for you and then we'll head out uh, heavenly father we thank you we thank you for this community we thank you for friends we thank you that we get to journey after you together uh, we thank you for all of the impact that's happening in our community and around the world through keystone friends we just celebrate that uh, may we continue to put a very beautiful Jesus 
right at the front of everything we do so that people might be drawn to the light and come to know you as their heavenly father who loves them. I pray for friends who have some stuff they need to think about as we exit this conversation. I pray that you would give them courage as they take an honest look at not only what is alluring, uh, but also what is fulfilling. And so I pray for your grace and your peace to be on us all. May we demonstrate the fruit of the spirit as we interact with family and friends this week over Thanksgiving. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, the name above all names, the only name worthy to be praised, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, we'll see you Wednesday night for Elevate uh, or next Sunday.